I'm going to tell you something. It was worth coming to listen to you sing. I really mean that. That may be one of the most powerful things I've heard in a long time. Uh, you sang my favorite hymn, And Can It Be? And uh, Tammy and I just looked at each other. I think one of the greatest renditions of it I've ever heard. It stirred my heart. Matter of fact, I'd been happy if we just sang all night long. That'd been all right with me. And I love being with the Reigns family. They're always a blessing, aren't they? And I thank God for them. Now, the pastor and I really don't know one another. How many of you think he's taking a step of faith tonight? Yes? <laughs> and uh, I've heard such great things about him and the ministry here and what God is doing. And just honored to be with you. This is one of my favorite groups. I really mean that. It is one of my favorite groups for many reasons. One, uh, when I was this age, God transformed my own life. Uh, Tammy and I worked in college work and with young people, with single adults for about 20 years before God called us into evangelism. And so I feel right at home with this group. And I know as I look across this auditorium that God has something so special for your life. We have three children of our own. My wife, Tammy, is with me. Tammy, stand for just a second, if you don't mind. She and I just celebrated our 25th wedding anniversary. And uh, she said yes, and I thank God. And we got married on Friday the 13th. That was the luckiest Friday the 13th of my life. And we have three children now. Our oldest daughter, Morgan, is 22, and uh, she just started teaching in a Christian school today. Our daughter, Lauren, just turned 20, and our son, Grant, is 17 and going into senior year of high school. So when I'm looking at you, I'm thinking about them, and I'm thinking about all the things that God has for the young men and young women in this room and the bright future that lies ahead of you. Now, to be truthful with you, I have nothing to say tonight. I have nothing to say. But God has much to say to us. And to be honest with you, my sermons never changed anybody's life anyhow. And so when we're done tonight, I really don't care if you remember my name or my sermon outline or any of that. It's meaningless to me. But what I do want you to leave with tonight is the Word of God. How many of you have a Bible with you? Would you hold it up in the air just a second? You have a copy of the Word of God? I want you to open your Bible with me tonight to the last book of the Bible, to the revelation of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to take you tonight to Revelation chapter 3. Matter of fact, we're going to take a little trip. We're going back in time 2,000 years and halfway around the world. And I'm going to take you to my favorite church tonight. How many of you have a favorite church? It better be your church, all right? And uh, your favorite preacher ought to be your pastor. You know, I told a group of people the other day in a conference, it's bad. This is terrible. And I love these kind of meetings. But we've almost created such a conference Christianity in America that people think God only speaks in meetings like this. And I want to just remind you that the man that opens the Bible every Lord's Day preaches the Word of God to you is the Lord's messenger to you. And so anybody can blow through town and preach a handful of sermons. You ought to go home and have this kind of enthusiasm on Sunday. And that one is extra, all right? Look at Revelation chapter 3 and verse number 7. Here's my favorite church. The Bible says, unto the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right? Stop, lift your head and look at me just a minute. How many of you ever been to Philadelphia? I'm talking about this Philadelphia, our Philadelphia. You've been there? They call it the city of what? <laughs> yeah. I want you to know, I flew through there the other day. It is not the city of brotherly love. It's anything but that. But it takes its name from this ancient city of Philadelphia that was a fascinating city. It was really a missionary city, not for the gospel, not initially. It was a missionary city for Greek culture. In other words, it was designed on a certain thoroughfare so that everybody that came through the place would stand in awe at the Greeks and they would take the culture of that place and they would translate it and transport it all over the world. You see, the world has a strategy. Yes. 
And I love this. Jesus invaded Philadelphia. And when the Lord came to Philadelphia and a church was started there, God turned the thing upside down and inside out so that it was no longer a missionary city for Greek culture. It was a missionary city for the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And so John writes to this church in Asia Minor. And notice he's writing on behalf of the Lord Jesus. And look at what he writes. These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth, and no man shutteth, and shutteth, and no man openeth. I know thy works. Let's pause there just a moment. He said that to every one of the churches he wrote to in Revelation. Would you look me in the eye? Jesus knows you. He knows you better than your best friend. He knows you better than you know you. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And the Lord answers that. He said, I, the Lord, try the hearts. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength. <laughs> How many of you think that doesn't sound too positive? <laughs> Keep reading, though. And has kept my word, and has not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I'll make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. I love this. He said, the people that hate you, and the people that stomp you down, he said, eventually, they're going to come and they're going to be kneeling at your feet. Paul talked about when he wrote to the church at Corinth. He said, unbelievers will come in and sense the presence of God in such a way that they will fall down in your midst and worship God. Please don't miss this. They're not worshiping us. All worship goes to Jesus. Watch this. How is it possible that the enemy would kneel at our feet? There's only one way for that to happen. You ready for this? Romans 16 says that God will bruise Satan under our feet shortly. He's already bruised under the nail-pierced feet of Jesus. So the only way Satan can be bruised under our feet is when we are seated with Jesus in heavenly places. And so there's coming a moment where the Lord's going to turn the whole thing around so that all those people that laughed and mocked our Christ will be kneeling at our feet worshiping the lovely Lord Jesus that is seated next to us. It's powerful. Keep reading. Verse number 10, Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. And I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God. And I will write upon him my new name. And somebody said, well, preacher, what is that name? If you read the rest of Revelation, he says nobody knows it. So if anybody tells you they know what the name is, get as far away from them as you possibly can. You know what he's revealing? I love this. For the child of God, the best is yet to come. Look, the devil gives you all his best up front and it's all downhill from there. But the Lord always saves the best for last. And so the Lord says, look, I got big things in store for you. 
And then read verse 13 with me, would you please? Ready? He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. And I want to say right now, Holy Spirit, speak to me. Holy Spirit, speak to these young adults. What is the greatest generation? They said that of my grandfather's generation. Both of my grandparents are, both sets of grandparents are with the Lord now. My grandpa Paul, was an old-timey, leather-lunged, peel-the-paint-off-the-wall mountain preacher from the hills of West Virginia. Anybody here from West Virginia? I'm just curious. Any fellow mountaineers? I see a couple saved people here. That's very good. <laughs> Wonderful. That's right, Brother Raines. How many of you have ever been to West Virginia? How many of you know it's a state? Would you raise your hand, please? Yeah. And I was raised in the hills of West Virginia, and my grandpa Paula, he was just an old-timey mountain preacher. He had no education at all, and he had very little couth about him. But he did have a gospel tent. <laughs> and he would take it around, and he would set it up in places, and he'd preach for six, eight, ten weeks at a time, and they'd see hundreds of people saved, and they'd start a church out of that. Matter of fact, the church I grew up in was started out of one of those gospel tent meetings. I was preaching in a church a couple of years ago, preaching a revival meeting, and I did not know it was a church my grandfather had started. And at the end of the meeting one night, a man came out and he said, did you know your grandpa Paulie? And I said, no, sir, he died. He was 57, died before I was born. I said, did you know him? He started crying. And he said, I didn't just know him, son. He said, he led me to Jesus. And he said, he baptized me in a pond out behind the old sanctuary at the time one Sunday afternoon. He said, you know those words you preachers say when you baptize? I said, yes, I know those words. He said, he must have been practicing because he held me under a long time that day. Grandpa was a little rough around the edges. He got, he got kicked out of a couple churches, to be truthful with you. He got to preaching one time in a church, and he said, Bless God. That's what preachers say when they're about to say something they probably shouldn't say, you know. And he says, Bless God, there's two things no church needs. That's a clock on the wall and a busy-bodied woman, and this church has got both of them. That wasn't a good thing to say at all. And he, did, he didn't stay long in that church either, let me tell you. When he died, he left three pennies in his pocket. That was... That was what he owned, three pennies. My dad said to all the siblings, don't argue over the inheritance. I'm keeping every bit of it. And he did. And we still have them taped in the family Bible and home. Somebody said, that's what he left? Oh, no, that's not really what he left. The lines are falling to me in pleasant places. Yea, I have a goodly heritage. He left a testimony of faith in God. My grandpa Martin was really one that influenced me. Matter of fact, we live now on his old farm. I just told somebody this week, we built a house on the very field where I drove a tractor for the first time as a 12-year-old boy. And I remember him saying, we got to get the hay done, son. You're going to help me today. Get on that tractor. Grandma about had a heart attack, but I had a lot of fun, let me tell you. Grandpa was, he was a mountain man. He was quiet. He was not a preacher. He was a deacon in our local church. He was a World War II vet. As a matter of fact, he was at Pearl Harbor right after the attack. Helped with all the cleanup. He was a coal miner. You know those coal miners, they're, they're a special breed of men. He was literally crawling through a coal mine one day and a piece of coal, a little slab of coal fell from above and cut half of his ear off. Uh, he picked it up, crawled out of the mine, got in his car, drove himself to the hospital, handed it to a nurse and said, sew this back on. And they did. And they didn't clean it out good. And they sewed a little grayish green line of coal dust into his earlobe. It was there to the day he died. And as a boy growing up, I thought, that's a man. I wanted one of those marks, you know. I thought. <laughs> Grandpa died in his mid-80s with his tomato steaks in his hand on his way to the garden. He was a man. 
They called his generation the greatest generation for good reason. They fought, they sacrificed. They were men. They were men. But I've been pondering this lately. Does that mean the great days are over? (laughs) Is our God a past tense God or a present tense God? When Moses said, I need to know your name, I need to tell them your name, God didn't say, I was. And he didn't say, I will be. He said, I. Right. And the one who was, is, and the one who has, can, he is the great I am. He is the very present help in time of trouble. So if that is true, and our great God is still at work in this world, And I wonder why so many Christians right now are talking about our Christian faith like the greatest generation is the generation that's already gone. Excuse me. But we got too many Christians whining their way to the rapture. I'm sick of it. Traveling around, listening to people talk about how bad everything is. Listen to me. Things have always been bad, and evil men and seducers will wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But God's still on the throne, and God is good in every generation. God has not forgotten us. God has not failed us. God has not forsaken us. And he's not about to start in our generation. You know, we're going to be pretty embarrassed when we finally get to the judgment seat and tell the Lord what a hard time we had with our culture. And the martyrs step up and tell us how they were put to death for their faith in Jesus. What's wrong with us? I'll tell you what's happened to us. We've gotten our eyes off the greatness of God. We've gotten our eyes on how bad things are around us and how weak we are. We just have a little strength, preacher. That's all right. That's all right. God has more than enough strength. They took a survey on university campuses a few years ago, and they asked university students, how many of you are in college right now? Would you raise your hand in college? That's great. Congratulations. Finished, by the way. They asked college students, if you could be born in any generation in history, when would you like to be born? And the top three answers were the Victorian era of England, the old Wild West in America, and the Roaring Twenties. Now, don't get me wrong. I'd love to visit all of those for a day or two. But can I submit something to you tonight? I believe we are living at this moment in the greatest generation. Do you understand that some generation is going to be serving the Lord and alive and breathing and on the welcoming committee when the Son of God comes and we may be that generation? Do you understand the privilege God has given you to live near the end of the story? All my life, I've heard people say, if we could just live in Acts, if we could just... Brother, you're living on the verge of revelation. Don't you know the first century disciples would have given anything to have lived at this moment in history and have the opportunity that God has given us at this present hour? Let me tell you about the church at Philadelphia. Did you know it was the youngest of the seven churches? I'm looking at a bunch of young people in this room. And I'm in a lot of youth meetings. I've been in tons of them this summer. And frankly, I'm getting tired of hearing people get up and say, well, I'm glad I'm not a young person in this generation. Well, that's encouraging. Thank you, brother. We appreciate it. (laughs) Do you think God made a mistake when he let you be born at this time in history? How many of you think the sovereign God of the universe knows exactly what he's doing? God knew when Noah was born that a flood would come. 
God knew. God knew when Moses was born that he'd be in Egypt. God knew when Joseph was born that daddy would be old and things would be different. God knew all of that. You understand God knew that Daniel would be in the middle of Babylon and God knew that Jeremiah would live through the captivity and God knew that Nehemiah would have to deal with the broken down walls and city gates of the old ruins of Jerusalem. Do you understand? God knows all of that. And some of you, even some of you who have faith in Jesus as your Savior for eternity are not living in faith right now. Why is it we can believe God for heaven but we can't believe God for here? You're telling me God is big enough to save you from a hell you've never seen and he's not strong enough to help you with the devil that's staring you in the face at this moment. Now, I came to tell you that God is God in every generation and he not only knows where you are, look please, he is where you are and God is the one that chose you for this time. I believe in the good providence of God. The Lord has allowed me to live in this generation. And I love history and I love heritage. I walked through the old auditorium over here a while ago and stood up behind that pulpit preacher and thought about all the meetings and, and Dr. Seitler's ministry and all of that and, and your heritage hall over here and all the piece of history and at Crown College all those years we got, had, had all those hallways filled with artifacts from Spurgeon and Moody and Mueller and I'm glad for all of that but I want to say to you tonight those men had their moment and they are with Jesus now and this is our moment in history and we must not miss it. This is the greatest generation to serve Jesus Christ. And I'm going to prove it to you from the Word of God. Do you understand that the church in Philadelphia, and I don't want to get into all the, all the prophetic implications of this, represents the church that will be taken out before the great tribulation comes. How many of you are glad we're leaving before all that mess breaks out? Brother, you think it's bad now. You haven't seen anything yet. Can you imagine what it's going to be like when the salt and light are gone and the restraining work of the Holy Spirit is removed and the dam breaks and the flood tide of iniquity covers this planet? And there are people that think we're going to be here through all of that. There are good people who even think we're going to be here through a portion of that. I don't believe that's what the Bible teaches, and if you want to stay, have at it, but I intend to go when the Lord comes. And the church in Philadelphia is the church, look please, living right here on the edge of eternity. And any moment they're going to see Jesus and Jesus says to them, I am coming quickly and I'm going to keep you from the hour of temptation. But please don't miss this. It was to that same church living on the verge of the tribulation that the Lord says, I have given you the greatest open door of any church. I want you to let that sink in just a moment. Do you understand how good God has been to us to give us this privilege and opportunity? What shall we say when we meet Jesus? What shall we say, excuse me, what will he say when we kneel at the nail-pierced feet of the Son of God and give an account for this generation? Pardon me. There's no backup to previous generations. You don't get that shot. This is your moment. And you can't forward to the generation to come. But you have this moment in time and you will meet God with what you did in your generation. I want you to write down two or three truths from our scripture tonight. Would you please, number one, I want you to see that the greatest generation is the generation with the view of the greatness of God. Would you like to know the great generation? It has nothing to do with their prosperity, it has nothing to do with all the physical and material and temporal things. It has everything to do with this. Do they know who God is? 
And I love this. Would you look how it begins in verse 7? He said, these things saith he that is holy. That's the character of our God. God is the perfection of all of his attributes. He's never more of one than he is of another. But did you know that the holiness of God is mentioned more as a prefix to God than any other attribute in the Bible? Would you like to know why that is? Because the holiness of God is the perfection of all of his attributes. His his knowledge is holy. His power is holy. His presence is holy. Everything about our God is holy. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Watch, which was and is and is to come. He always has been holy. He's holy at this moment. He always will be holy. You can't add to the holiness of God and you can't subtract from the holiness of God because this is just who God is. And I'm going to tell you what a generation of young adults need right now. Excuse me. In the midst of a perverse society and a perverted world and corrupt Christianity, we need some young men and young women who get a fresh glimpse of the holiness of our God. Isaiah saw the holiness of God and said, Woe is me, I'm undone. John saw the holiness of God and played like a dead man. Peter saw the holiness of God and said, get away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. You cannot get a glimpse of the holiness of God and be the same person. And frankly, preachers like me spend a whole lot of time and energy trying to get people to get the sin out of their life. Let me let you in a little secret. When Jesus has his rightful place in your life, he will crowd the sin out of your life because there won't be room for the holiness of God and the unholiness of your flesh at the same time. Years ago, I had a friend say to me, he said, Scott, I was a young man starting to serve the Lord. I had gone through school and gotten a degree, and I was studying and working hard. We were driving down the road one day, and my friend said to me, a much older man, he said, Scott, at this juncture in your life, you don't need to know more. You need to see more. That helped me. We got a world that thinks knowledge is power. Paul said, knowledge puffeth up. Listen to me. You can know all the right things. You can even win Bible trivia every time you play. But it is not about how much you know about God. It is rather what kind of vision you have of the greatness and the holiness of your God. Dear Holy Spirit, take the veil away. Look at it. He is holy and he's true. The word true there literally means genuine and authentic. Aren't you glad in a world full of fakes, our God is the genuine one. In our filtered society where we put on a good show for public consumption, there is a Christ who is always the same and he is always the real deal. And some of you right now are hungry for something that is real and you're tired of the facade. Tear down the facade and get to Jesus. And I'll tell you, when the true one takes over, he changes everything. And I love this. Look, he says he has the key of David. Back in chapter 1, he had the keys to death, hell, and the grave. Now he's got another key on his key ring. He has the key of David. What is that? That's the key of royalty. Do you understand? He's the king. He's, he's the one in charge of it all. He that openeth and no man shutteth and shutteth and no man openeth. Look, please, look. Sin closes in on a man. You follow the flesh and the world, things close in on you. You follow Jesus, he opens everything up. Instead of being pressed on every side, trying to figure out what you're going to do with the rest of your life, you get a glimpse of Almighty God, and suddenly the Eternal One will give you a totally different perspective on the rest of your life. I know, I know, I know. They only had a little strength, but wait a minute. His strength is made perfect in our weakness. Do you understand? God doesn't want you in your strength. He wants you in his strength. And the only way to get you to his strength is first, he has to get you to your weakness. Some of you in recent days have had the wind knocked out of you. 
Tremendous disappointment. This week, a single adult man in another state sent me a message, and he said, I just listened to a sermon that you gave, and he said, pray for me and pray for my fiancé. He said, we thought we had our lives all planned out. We, we thought we had everything mapped out, and suddenly all of that has disappeared from in front of us. Do you understand that sometimes those are God's gifts to you? Some of you right now, somebody's really disappointed you. I mean, they've hurt you. They've done you wrong. I want to tell you something. That's a gift. He said, no, preacher, you don't know what somebody said. Listen to me. God's trying to teach you to get your eyes off of men and get your eyes on the greatness of God. Some of you are wondering and worrying about your future and trying to figure it all out. Listen to me. God's not looking for planners. He's looking for followers, and he's already got the plan. Get your eyes on the greatness of our God, and the Lord will give you what you need. The second truth I want you to write down, and it's this. The greatest generation is not only the generation with a view of the greatness of God, but number two, the greatest generation is the generation that has the greatest open door for the gospel. See, it wasn't just about the people of Philadelphia knowing the Lord. No, no, God was opening the door so many could come to know the Lord. Look at verse number 8. He said, I know your works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door. Mark that in your Bible, an open door. And the open door was... So that out, not into them, but out of them, God could work in the lives of others. How many of you know the name William Borden? Borden of Yale? I was 25 years old. That book changed my life. Every young adult in this room that's serious about following Jesus, whatever it is God leads you to do with, with, your, with your life as far as career or calling, everybody ought to read the life of Borden of Yale. He and a group of buddies in their college dorm room one morning before chapel at Yale University knelt and prayed, God, speak to us today. They went to chapel and an old man by the name of Samuel Gordon, S.D. Gordon, was preaching that day. It's a name little known today, but S.D. Gordon was a man that knew God. He wrote a bunch of little books, little talks on prayer, quiet talks on Jesus. Powerful. He preached a message that day. When the chapel was done, William Borden, long before he ever became a mission, missionary and became famous, William Borden went back to his dorm room, took out his journal, and wrote in his journal these words, I learned something today that has changed my life. The text that day had been John chapter 7 where Jesus said that the person that yields to the Lord out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. And here's what Borden wrote in his journal. He said, I learned today that the world's way is into, but the Lord's way is out of. You know the problem with a whole generation right now? Everybody's trying to see what they can get, what they can gain, what they can accomplish. It's all about what I can get, all that comes to me. It's into. Listen to me. God, when he gets a hold of you, turns that inside out and makes you realize it is not about you. It's about the world God chose for you to minister to. There are many things you could do with your life, but what you could do and what you should do aren't always the same thing. Are you choosing or is God? You understand outside these walls tonight is the greatest mission field that's ever lived. Now, I'm not even talking about getting a passport and getting on an airplane flying halfway around the world. Do you understand that in the community where you live, in your Philadelphia, in your town, that there are men and women your age that God loves and Jesus died for who are going to perish and go to hell forever because they've never one time heard the clear gospel message of Jesus? 
And dear God, have mercy. We're waiting on some evangelist to blow through town and preach a great sermon and win the world to Christ. That is never going to happen because that's not God's way. God's way is that every believer in a church like this gets out of themselves and out of their clique and out of their comfort zone and says, by the grace of God, I'm walking through the open door. Man came to Mr. Spurgeon one day at the end of one of his messages and said, I want to be a soul winner. I want to win people to Jesus. Can you teach me how? And they said that Spurgeon said to him, where do you work, sir? He said, I work on a train. He said, is the man that works on the train with you know Jesus? He said, I have no idea. He said, go start there. I'm looking at some men in this room. Some of you, God wants you to be preachers. God called me to preach July 27, 1989. Outside of getting saved, that was the greatest decision ever made. It was wonderful. An old mountain preacher in the hills that night said, God's called you to preach. I was 12, almost 13 years of age. I said, yes, sir. He said, great, get your first sermon together. You're going to preach next week in a cottage prayer meeting. And I remember saying, hold up. Let's talk about this thing for a minute. He said to me, if you don't start serving God now, you probably never will. He was right. I got my first sermon together. Boy, it was pitiful. All of about five minutes. Mr. Miss Logan's house, I stood there, all those senior citizens sitting around, they all smiled, nodded their heads at me. When I finished preaching, they got in line, hugged my neck, and told me it was the greatest sermon they'd ever heard, and I was the next Billy Sunday. They lied to me. That's what they did. <laughs> but I got started. Some of you, God's after you. There's young women in this room, God's after you. I'm thinking, I grew up in West Virginia. My wife grew up in Michigan, but God forgives Yankees too. You know that, right? <laughs> We met in college, but I'm thinking now, what would have happened if my wife had not yielded her life as a teenage girl to do whatever God wanted her to do? Do you understand? I could never do in my life what I'm doing right now if God had not only worked in my heart but in her heart and put the two of us together. Listen to me. Do you understand God is after you for his work in this world? But I'm not here to tell you your call. That's not my business. That's not between me and you. That's between you and the Lord. I'm here to say to every Christian in this room tonight, whether you're a preacher or a missionary or not, God has a gospel work he intends you to do with your life, and the greatest thing you'll ever do with your life is connect your life to what God is doing in this world. Would you like to know what the Lord is up to tonight? He's trying to get people saved. So when was the last time you tried? How many of you are going to heaven and glad about it? Now, who are you taking with you? I love the meetings and I love the joy and I love the excitement. But I'm going to tell you, that enthusiasm we sang with a while ago, we need some people to walk out that door a little bit with the same Holy Ghost enthusiasm to get the gospel out and get sinners in. Look, there is a great open door in front of us and we must not miss it. You understand this coming a day, the door's going to close. People say, wonder why Jesus hasn't come. I'll give you a Bible reason. He's long-suffering usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God is giving a time for people to repent and be saved, and this is our moment to get the gospel out. Tammy and I were witnessing to a lady a few months ago in our hometown, and just off the cuff, you know, we live in the Bible Belt like many of you, and I thought, well, you know, this woman knows Jesus, and I said to her, ma'am, do you know the Lord in a personal way? She said, oh, no. I don't know why I said this. I hardly ever even use the term in my witnessing. But I said to her, have you ever heard the word gospel? And her face lit up and she said, yes, I've heard that word before. I said, do you know what it means? She said, I have no idea. I said, well, I'm going to tell you what, it, what the message of the gospel is in a minute. I said, but did you know the word gospel means good news? 
I wish I could have bottled up at that moment the look on her face. And she said to me and Tammy, Sir, I need some of that right now. For all the joy in this room, do you understand there's a broken-hearted world out there that is searching desperately at this moment for some good news? Suicide is up 200% from my father's generation to mine. 200%. One of my buddies in high school took his life, and you think, well, that's just teenagers. Last year, I had a friend of mine who was near 70 that took his life. I'm going to tell you something. I hadn't planned to say this. Solomon said a living dog is better than a dead lion. You know what that means? As long as you're breathing, there's still hope. How many of you are breathing? Check on your neighbor if they didn't raise their hand, would you please? If you're breathing, God's not finished with you. And by the way, if God's not finished, you shouldn't quit. This, this idea, or we're just going to hold on and make the most of a, a terrible situation in our world. Do you understand? This is the glorious moment of the gospel because it is at these moments in history that the greatest spiritual awakenings have come. Read your history books. That's a part of our problem. People don't even know history anymore. man said to me the other day, it's never been this bad before, and I wanted to say, buy a history book, friend. There have been generations that have bled and died for what we're doing in here tonight. See, we've lived with our comfortable, convenient American form of Christianity for so long. We've taken a lot for granted, and we've forgotten that our work is the work of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there's not a politician in this planet, and there's not a work that could be done in Washington that will change the heart of man like the gospel message will do. And we need some people to get awake to it again. There's a third thing I want you to see. Would you write it down, please? The greatest generation. It's not only the generation with a view of the greatness of God and seeing the great opportunity and open door, but number three, it's the generation that will be alive when the greatest event in history takes place. May I suggest to you what the greatest event in history is? It's not trending on social media. No. No, I flipped on the news earlier. Probably shouldn't have, but I did flip it on a little earlier, and they're not talking about it on the news tonight. And truthfully, very few people are even thinking about it. But the greatest day in the history of the world is going to be the day Jesus steps out on a cloud and the trumpet sounds. And I know, I know what some of you are thinking. Well, I want to get married before that happens, preacher. Our daughter got married in January. Did you know I prayed for the rapture to happen before that day? I really did. And that bum she married prayed against me, and he got his prayers answered. What do you think of that? No. It was a wonderful day, but I know, I get it. You know, I want to do this and do that and have the opportunity to do this, and I'd like to live my life. And May I just say something to you tonight, and please hear me with your heart. If Jesus shows up, you won't be disappointed. There is nothing you have planned that can compare to what God has planned for you on the other side. No, no. I have not seen, hear, not heard. It has not entered the heart of men the things that God has prepared for them that love him. Do you understand? Look, please. God has much more for you. Let me ask you something. What if you knew Jesus was coming at midnight tonight? No, I mean, what if you knew it? Now, nobody knows. Nobody knows the day or the hour, but it's almost 820. What if you knew at midnight tonight, straight up and down, the trumpet would sound? What would you do with the next three hours and 40 minutes? I mean, pray tell me, what would you do? 
Anything you'd get right with God? Anything you'd say, I don't want to meet Jesus with this? Anybody you'd call? Anybody you'd want to see? Anything at all you'd want to accomplish before you see Jesus? I was preaching in a little church in Kentucky a few years ago, and right in the middle of the message, a woman on the right-hand side, just two sections, the woman on the right-hand side started weeping, just sobbing. I tried to get to the invitation as quick as I could, but before I could get there, she jumped up out of her seat, climbed over three people, got to the middle aisle, and she didn't come this way. She ran that way, hard as she could. Hit the door at a a full-out run, never came back in the building. I prayed for her. I didn't know. About two weeks later, I got a letter said, Brother Paulie, I, I want to apologize for disrupting the service a few weeks ago in Kentucky, but I want to explain to you why. She said, I know Jesus and love Jesus. And she said, my father, he's lost. And she said, I can't explain it to you. She said, but in the middle of the message, it was like the Lord just helped me see that if my daddy died like he was at that moment, he'd be lost forever. And she said, finally, I just couldn't take it anymore. She said, I went and found a phone and called my dad. She said, I didn't get saved yet. But she said, in faith, she said, I believe he's about to be saved. She said, because for the first time in his lifetime, through my tears, he listened to me give him the gospel. And you know what I thought? I thought probably the most important sermon given that night was not the one I gave. It was the one she gave. We got too much spectator Christianity. That's what we got. We come in, sit in chairs and cross our arms and look at the preacher like, all right, tell me something. No, a thousand times no. Let's get some people off the bench and in the game for the Lord Jesus Christ. This is your moment and you will never have it again. Look at the closing verses, would you? He says in verse 10, he's going to keep you from the hour of temptation that will come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. That phrase found nine times in Revelation, literally the earth dwellers. Look, please, I'm not an earth dweller. You say, you mean you're not on earth? This is kind of spooky. Oh, I'm on earth, but I'm not an earth dweller. This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. Matter of fact, I'm not even just here tonight. That's going to sound strange to some of you. But at this moment, I'm seated with him in heavenly places. And if you're saved, so are you. But God says those who simply dwell on this earth and do not know the God of heaven, they will be lost and they will be left in the tribulation age. How many of you know somebody that needs Jesus and you don't want them to go to hell? Would you raise your hand? Look, please, it's not just about us. At the judgment seat, who's going to look at you and say, that man led me to Jesus? Some of you work a job. You work a job every week and there's people on that job that have never heard about Jesus. Never. And I'm preaching to me tonight, not just to you. You know what's easier to preach about witnessing than it is to witness? Absolutely. What about those people that live across the street from you? What about the people that sit in the same classroom that you do? Would to God some young men and young women in this generation would get a passion for God and a glimpse of eternity and a longing to see people saved and say, we got to get this done. Jesus is coming soon. Don't take my word for it. Look at his word, verse 11. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Must I go and empty-handed? Must I meet my Savior so? Not one soul with which to greet him. Must I empty-handed go? I must be honest with you, Pastor. I had no idea what to expect tonight. The enthusiasm was over the top, off the charts. But I didn't know exactly how many single adults would be here. 
This is powerful. But let's forget you for a minute. Let's imagine we had 200 single adults in this room that said, you know, I can't do everything, but I can do something, and I can't win the world, but I can win somebody. Let's imagine we had 200 men and women in this room get serious about winning one person to Jesus. How many of you think it would be great to be in a meeting where 200 people get saved? I was in a meeting a few weeks ago. It was an opening night of a meeting with lots and lots of young people. And uh, I, honestly, opening night, you're just trying to get an entry point. You know what I mean, but you never know when the Holy Spirit's going to show up and work. We saw 45 young people come to Christ that night. It was thrilling. It did something for my faith. 200? Imagine that. How'd you like us to have a meeting? See, this is not the only meeting. There's a bigger meeting being planned. We're going to be at it very shortly. How'd you like to show up at the meeting at the throne and see 200 souls there because 200 soul winners here decided to get serious and make this generation the greatest generation for the sake of the gospel? Almost done. Look at verse 12. Him that overcometh. Dear God, give us some people like that. Well, I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. You know something interesting about Philadelphia? It was known for earthquakes. They had so many of them, they constantly had to evacuate the city. And they said the earthquakes were so violent there that very often the most beautiful buildings collapsed to the ground. And the only thing that was left when they got back into the city over and over and over again were the pillars that were still upright. And I love the mental imagery here. God says, you understand, the whole world's going to be shaken, and everything not connected to God is going is to be gone. But in the end... And those who are identified with Jesus will still be standing. We're living in a changing world, young people. We need some young people rooted in God who won't change with the wind. Look at me. Who don't just start right and stay right for a while. Who finish their course with joy and meet Jesus doing what God gave us to do. He said, I'll write upon him the name of my God. In the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God. You understand that's your new residence? Your forwarding address. I hear people say, we're going to heaven, going to heaven. Let's be technical about it. There'll be a new heaven, a new earth, and we'll get to enjoy all of that. But actually, the address for the New Testament church is called the New Jerusalem. This is your forwarding address. This is where you're going to live someday. And I love this. He says, and I'll write upon him my new name. Oh, thank you, Lord. Look, God says... I'm going to stamp you for myself. The world's trying to put its brand on some of you. And the devil's going to put his brand on a whole lot of people in the tribulation age. But the Lord Jesus said, those who know me and love me and follow me and serve me, he said, they're going to wear my name someday. I love this. And they will go no more out. Don't you love coming to meetings like this? And you know one of the tests of a good meeting like this? Nobody wants to leave. I mean, seriously, just when the Lord shows up, it's just a great place. So you dismiss the meeting and people just hang around and hang around. You know why? Because we don't want to go out. Look, God says someday we will go no more out. But until then, this is our generation to reach people for Christ. Do you know the name Adoniram Judson? Famous missionary to Burma. Adoniram and Ann did you know they did not start out as Baptist? That's right. It's funny, you know, a lot of our heroes, people we talk about, they, they didn't start out exactly like we are. No. No, when they got on the boat, they had not even been baptized by immersion. What do you think of that? And God in his good providence 
put somebody on the boat that was a Baptist. And when they landed overseas, they wrote back to their mission agency and resigned and said, we can't represent you anymore because we've become Baptist on the ride over here. That's a true story. They were so full of vim and vigor, young adults, going to turn Burma upside down. And Adoniram got arrested. You ought to read the story. They tortured him, beat him. It was awful. They let his wife in one day to see him, young bride, hadn't been married long. And comes into the prison cell, and he's hanging by his thumbs in the prison cell. And she just starts weeping. And he rouses himself and sees his bride standing there, and he says, Ann, what are you doing here? And she's sobbing, and she takes a piece of paper out of her pocket, and she said, Adoniram, the mission agency that we represent back home has written you a letter. They need a report. They, they said well, they hadn't heard from you in a while. They need to know how the work here is progressing, how things are going. This kind of things always come just when you don't need them, don't they? Adoniram Judson, hanging by his thumbs in a prison cell, true story said to his wife, you write them and tell them that the future here is as bright as the promises of God. Within three hours, he was released from that prison cell. They turned Burma upside down for Christ. About two years ago, I was preaching in a single adult meeting in southern Alabama, not far from the Florida line, it was a meeting much like this. It was in a, it was in a, a kind of a neutral location, a big auditorium, and, and uh, it was fully single adults like this, and they were singing and happy in Jesus. And I noticed, I was standing on the platform with the man running it, and I noticed off to the right there was this group of young adults, and they all had matching T-shirts on. And they were singing at the top of their lungs. I mean, they were just happy in the Lord. You could see them. And I said to the guy running, I said, tell me about that group over there. And he said, that's a funny thing. He said, I don't know those people. And he said, they don't know us. He said, but they're a part of a Bible study group on a major secular university campus in Florida, one of the main universities. And they found out about this meeting, and they called and said, can we bring our Bible study group? And I said, well, that's wonderful. The next day, I walked into the cafeteria where we were taking our meals, and I got my food, and I'm walking along, and there was a table of them, same group, matching T-shirts again. They were really in style, you know. And they had one empty seat at their table, and I said to them, you all mind if I sit with you? And, oh, no, preacher, sit down. And I sat down, and we talked for a while, and we, we helped start a ministry at the University of Tennessee when I was in Knoxville years ago, and that was one of mine, Tammy's favorite ministries, and so we, we had a connection, and we talked a little while. And finally, I said to the leader of the group, he was a student, but he was a le the leader, I said, tell me about your group. Tell me how it got started. I said, I, I'm familiar with lots of student organizations, and, you know, we, we, we hear a lot about uh, FCA and certain groups like that and groups on university campuses. I said, but your group is different. Tell me about your group. How did it get started? And he looked at me as straight as he could, and he said, have you ever heard of a man named Adoniram Judson? And I said, you mean the missionary to Burma? He said, yes, yeah, the one. I said, yes, I've heard of him. He said, he really kind of started our Bible study group. I said, well, now that's interesting, but he's been dead a long time, so you're going to need to help me a little bit, understand, make the connection here. And I will to my dying day never forget what he said. He said, there was a young Burmese student that came from Burma, from Myanmar, to study in the great Christian nation, the United States of America. He was so excited because he loved Christ. 
he thought, if he could get to America, he'd find a bunch of other young adults who loved Christ. And he got to his university, and to his dismay, he could barely find a Christian. No prayer groups, no Bible study, no nothing going on. And this young Burmese man said, well, we'll start something. And he did. And the leader said to me, did you know, preacher, that that young man's great, great, great grandparents were personally led to Christ and discipled by Adoniram Judson? And immediately, I went to that prison cell. The future just as bright as all the promises of God. You think Adoniram Judson had any idea how God was going to complete that circuit and bring it full circle back to America so we could hear the gospel? I tell you, you have no idea how God is going to use you. Listen to me. The Adoniram Judsons of the world had their turn. It's over. It's your turn. It's time for some young adults in this room to get serious about their soul and their family and their friends and their church and their community and their generation. Because very soon, we're getting ready to see Jesus. Our Father, may the Spirit of the living God do His deep work in us now. Oh, Lord God Almighty, would you say what no preacher can say? And let us see something tonight, Lord, that could touch the world. Our heads are bowed. We sit quietly. Before we have any music, may I ask a question or two? How many of you know? I don't mean you think. I mean you know. See, I come to a meeting like this. I don't assume everybody in this room is saved. I'd hate to think somebody missed heaven from a meeting like this. How many of you know in your heart, if you died tonight or Jesus came at midnight, you say, Preacher, I'm ready. I know I've been born again. No doubt about that. I want you to raise your hand toward heaven right now. With your hand raised to heaven, would you just thank God for that right now? Right now, just say to the Lord, Lord, thank you for not letting me go to hell because I'm going to tell you, if it wasn't for Jesus, you couldn't say that. It's all Christ. You may lower your hands and I must ask this question. Would you be an honest person? I will not embarrass you. I don't like to be embarrassed. I don't like to embarrass others. I will not make a spectacle of you. I just want to pray for you. And nobody's looking at this preacher. Who's here tonight that would say, Preacher, if I died tonight or Jesus came tonight, I'm not 100% sure that my sins have been forgiven and that Christ is my Savior. Preacher, I'm not positive I'm ready to go to heaven, but I'm sure of this. I don't want to be lost. I don't want to go to hell. Pray for me. I want you to raise your hand in the air with mine long enough for me to see it. Thank you for your honesty. Who else? Thank you for your honesty. Pray for me, preacher. I'm not certain of my soul's salvation. Now, if you just raised your hand, I want you to listen to me right now. If you're in the altar, I want you to stay here and pray because we're just beginning this moment But I want to speak to the people in this room who are not sure of their salvation. Would you listen to me, son? Young lady, would you listen to me? God loves you. Jesus died for you. 
He rose from the dead for you. And He doesn't want you to be lost. I don't think you want to be lost, do you? I'm going to give you a verse. Would you listen to this verse? Jesus said, Him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. You know what that means? I like this. It means if you'll take Jesus, He'll take you. It means if you'll take Him as your Savior, He'll bring you into God's family. Is that what you want? I'd like to give you an opportunity tonight to put your faith in Jesus. I mean right now to repent of your sin and believe on Christ alone for your salvation. I'm not asking you to stand up and give us a speech. I am not asking you to turn over a new leaf and try to do better. I'm not even asking you to join the church. I'm asking you tonight, would you believe on Christ and call on Him now for salvation? If you're willing to do that, I'd like to lead you in a very simple prayer that you can pray right where you are at this moment. Young lady, would you be willing to call on Jesus? Young man, would you be willing to call on Jesus tonight? He will save you. If that's what you want from your heart, would you join me in this prayer? Anybody in this room that wants to be saved and settle it, would you join me in this prayer? Right now from your heart, would you just say to God, Dear God, I'm a sinner. I can't save myself. And nobody else can save me. But I do believe Jesus died for me. Lord Jesus Christ, I believe you rose from the dead. Forgive my sin and come into my life. I trust you now to be my Savior. Thank you for dying for me and giving me eternal life tonight. Help me follow you from this day forward. Our heads are bowed. Our hearts are quiet. There's no movement in the room. The Bible says if you believe on Jesus, you won't be ashamed of it. If I gave you a million dollars, you wouldn't be embarrassed. You'd be excited. And if you just took Jesus as your Savior, I don't think you'll be embarrassed to tell me. I think you'll be happy to tell me. So I want to ask right now, who in this room would say, Brother Scott, I just prayed that prayer or something like it from my heart to God, and I meant it. And tonight, right where I'm sitting, I'm trusting Jesus and Jesus alone to be my Savior, and I'm not ashamed to tell you that. I want you to raise your hand big and high in the air with mine right now. Would you please? You say, I prayed tonight and invited Jesus into my life to be my Savior. Hold it big and high where I can see it. I want to tell you something. If you do not know Jesus, you must not leave here without Christ tonight. Please don't leave without Jesus. In fact, at any moment in this time of prayer, if you want to know Christ, you can get out of your seat and quietly walk to the back of this room, right to where the entrance is, and somebody will meet you and talk with you from the Bible. I don't want anybody in this room tonight to miss heaven and miss knowing Jesus Christ. We will not embarrass you. But let us answer your questions from the Bible and point you to salvation. Now I want to speak to all the Christians in this room right now. Every believer. You raised your hand. You said you're saved. I'm glad. Let's go down the line. Number one, how many of you in this room would say, Preacher, I am saved but I'm not living like it. And the truth is, I can't speak boldly for Christ because I haven't been living boldly for Christ. That has got to change if I'm going to be a witness. And tonight, I need to dedicate myself or rededicate myself to the Lord. That's me. Pray for me. I want you to raise your hand big and high in the air with mine right now. Would you please? I see you. Here's a second question. How many of you in this room tonight would say, Brother Scott, best I know I'm right with God. There's nothing, I think, between me and the Lord. I'm ready to meet God if He came at midnight tonight. 
But I realize I must give myself more fully to what matters to Jesus. And tonight, I want it to be a new beginning in my own life of witnessing and testimony and praying for my friends and getting a burden for the lost and reaching my generation. You say, preacher, that's me. Pray for me. I want you to raise your hand big and high in the air with mine right now. That's wonderful. I have one final question. Are there any young men or young ladies in this room tonight that would say, Brother Scott, I believe God is calling me not just to be a witness, not just to be a soul winner. He's actually calling me to serve Him in the ministry, in the Lord's work. And I've never said yes to that. I've never said yes to the Lord. But I truly believe in my heart that's what God wants. Pray for me. I want you to raise your hand with mine right now. Would you please? You say, I believe that. God bless you. I see you. I see you. Wonderful. Praise God. I'd like every person in this room Unless you're kneeling in this altar praying, I'd like you to lift your head and look me in the eye. I'm going to give a little different kind of invitation, and here it is. I'm going to ask everybody in this room to respond tonight. Everybody. Matter of fact, I think we'll do it without any music at all so we can all pray, and the only sound will be the sound of people talking to God. In the Bible, when you see people praying, they don't, they're not praying lounging around in their seat casually. They're always one of two positions. They're either on their knees, on their face before a holy God, or they're standing in reverence to the king as in the presence of royalty. In a moment, I'm going to ask everybody in this room that knows God's touched your heart as a Christian, everybody that wants to dedicate yourself to God or to witnessing, I'm going to ask you to do one of two things. If you're physically able, I'm going to ask you to find a place in this room to get on your knees. The altar's full. I'm glad. You can use the aisle. You can use your pew. doesn't matter to me. But find a place to get on your knees. And if you're not physically able in a moment to get down and get back up again easily, then I'm going to ask you to stand and make your prayer. But there's one exception to that. There's two groups I want to speak to in this room. There are a couple of you in this room not sure of your salvation. You're just not sure. And I respect it. I respect the fact you acknowledged it. And I'm not going to pressure you, and nobody here is going to high pressure you. But when people get up in a moment to find their place of prayer, I'm going to ask you to get up and walk to the back of this room. And spirit-filled men and women, I'm talking about good godly people, men and women with Bible in their hand, are going to be there to talk with you and pray with you. And, and there's three or four of you at least in this room, maybe more, that believe God's called you to serve Him in the ministry, and you've never surrendered to that. I'm going to ask you not to get on your knees or get on your feet. I'm going to ask you to get out of your seat and walk to the back and find one of these leaders and say to them, this is what God's called me to do. And I'm going to tell you why. I'm going to tell you why. Because you don't need to be general about it tonight. You need to be specific. And you need to tell somebody what God has done in your heart. Let this night be the beginning of making this the greatest generation for the gospel work. Here's the way we're going to do it. Simple and straightforward. Look, I'm not trying to pump you up or prime you. I'm just shooting straight with you tonight. I'm going to count to three. When I do... I'm going to ask you to find your place in this room to pray as a Christian. Or if you're making a decision for salvation or to surrender your life to ministry, I'm going to ask you to get out of your seat and walk to the back, and my workers are going to watch for you. Ready? One, two, three. Quickly, quietly, just leave your seat and find your place. If you're a Christian, on your knees, on your feet, to pray, to talk to God about what God's talked to you about. Some of you need to surrender your life to the Lord tonight. Walk to the back right now. Amen. That's wonderful. God bless you. For a few moments, I'm going to be still and quiet. Would you just talk to God? Talk to Him. God's been talking to you, hadn't He? What's God talking to you about?
Dear God, away with our general prayers. Lord, be thorough with us. May the Holy Spirit have His way. Oh, pray for yourself, dear one, first. We must be right with God. We must. God, help me. Have mercy. Would you ask God right now, Lord, give me a fresh glimpse of you? Ask Him. He'll answer that prayer. Lord, give me a fresh glimpse of who you are, of your greatness. Worship Him for a moment. Lord, you're holy. I'm unholy, but you're holy. Lord, you're true. I'm so often fake, aren't you? God is true. Lord, you open the doors. Show us you. Would you pray right now, dear God, give me a passion for the gospel. When was the last time you wept for souls? When was the last time we fasted and prayed for lost people to be saved? When was the last time you got really... Radical about trying to reach your friends for Jesus. Pray right now. God, put that fire back in me. Ignite that in me again, Lord. Pray for somebody you know that's lost right now. Call their name. God brought their face to your mind for a reason, didn't he? Lord, save him. Dear God, Mr. Hicks, on my road, talked to him this week, lost. Please, Lord, please turn his heart to you. Would you pray for your church right now? Pray for your church. You're Philadelphia. Your pastor, pray for him right now. God knows our pastors, they need somebody to come alongside with some fresh legs and heart and say, Preacher, we're with you in this thing. Let's win some people to Christ. Ask God to strengthen him and use you to encourage him. Would you do something? Would all you men find you a man near you to pray with? All you ladies find you a lady near you to pray with. Everybody find you a prayer partner real quick. Just put your arm around somebody. You don't even have to know them. Just say, hey, let's pray together. Before you pray, before you pray, tell them 
Tell them what God's speaking to your heart about and tell them somebody you're praying for to be saved. Right now, share that with one another. Then let's spend a few minutes in prayer. One of you can open, the other can close it. Let's all pray.